Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. And today we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. Uh, we want to recognize uh, just the, the time that we are living in right now as Canadians. And um, so we've, we, we're going to be inviting in a, a friend of ours, a friend of our fellowship, a friend of uh, mine. I've known, I've known Pastor Bruce for many, many years. And so uh, Pastor Bruce is going to be sharing a little bit of his story, a little bit of his experiences with residential schools, um, a little bit of, of the moment some of this news broke and how that kind of has affected uh, him personally, but also his outlook for the future as well. And so I think in this time, in this season, we need to be so thoughtful and prayerful, both about our response, about our reflection of the past, about our place in, in, in terms of repentance, in terms of dealing with the realities of what has been done, both uh, in the name of government, but also in the name of Christ, in the name of the church. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's heartbreaking, really, when you think of um, the things that were done in Christ's name. And so we as a church, we as believers need to be thoughtful about this season that we're in. And so I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Bruce, and then uh, we'll just uh, we'll jump back in right after. Hi, my name is uh, Pastor Bruce Brown. I am a pastor of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. It's uh, a very uh, a real privilege to be able to represent uh, Indigenous uh, people across the land uh, from my culture, language, and identity as well as representing the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in this fashion. In uh, May 27th, uh, 2021, a news release by CBC uh, was given uh, that there were uh, 215 graves uh, containing children at the Kamloops Indian Residential School and so the intent of the, in, the uh, residential school system, uh, their intention was to educate us, uh, to assimilate us, and uh, integrate Aboriginal people into Canadian society. In the words of one government official had it written down, uh, it was a system designed to kill the Indian in the child. Uh, my wife, Adeline Brown, and I, uh, uh, Bruce Brown, uh, were born and raised in uh, Haida Village, uh, in Haida Gwaii. And uh, we also were taken uh, and sent to Indian residential schools. And uh, others who attended residential schools near their communities were often prohibited from seeing their families outside of occasional uh, permitted visits. And so the, all of us were really isolated uh, from our parents. Students were forbidden to speak their language. It was uh, against the law at the time or practice their culture. Um, uh, my dad and my mom and dad, uh, when I was a little boy, um, had everything packed up into the, uh, into the attic that were native <laughs> and uh, and so we hid it up there for uh, many many years and we were often punished for doing so many students were forced to do manual labor and were fed uh, poor quality food uh, by the Indian residential schools there are many accounts of students being provided uh, moldy maggot infested and uh, rotten food 
And uh, I can attest to that in my experience in Indian residential school. I was sickly and, uh, and uh, was starving all the time. Any food I could steal, I did. And uh, any kind of rotten uh, uh, food I found in the garbage, I ate it. Other experiences reported from survivors of residential schools include sexual uh, and mental abuse. And that was uh, very evident uh, with most of our children who were there. Beatings and severe punishments uh, were put upon us, overcrowding, illnesses. Uh, we were forced to sleep uh, outside in the winter. Uh, the forced uh, wearing of soiled underwear on the head or uh, wet bed sheets on the body, use of students in medical experiments, disease, and in some cases, uh, many deaths that were there. Uh, uh, my wife was told uh, that she'll only, she'll, she'll, she'll never ever grow up to be anything, that she would have 10, 12 children, and uh, then she would die, you know, in that area. And so, and then uh, they used to tell me as a, as a native when I was just six years old that I would, uh, uh, that I would be uh, a drunken Indian and I would amount to nothing. And uh, the in intent uh, was to take uh, the Indian out of the Indian, our culture, our language, and our family connection. <clears throat> when I first heard about uh, the CBC making that announcement on the news release, uh, uh, I went in to my, uh, my, uh, my room by myself and I just wept and wept and wept all over again. And everything just seemed to resurface, you know, and come back up again. Uh, for me, it was very difficult. I can imagine other people who have suffered more than me. Uh, many, uh, many uh, people uh, who uh, know me have said, we don't know how you did it, Bruce, but you're a success. I don't feel like a success, but uh, thanks be to God uh, who gave me the victory, saved my life. And, uh, uh, in 1969, I gave my heart to Jesus, my wife and I together. Uh, from that moment on, I had no pastor, but I had the Word of God. <laughs> And it was a joy uh, to be able to uh, experience uh, that uh, in my life. And uh, uh, I'd like to read uh, from 2 Corinthians 5, um, uh, five sixteen. From now on, therefore, we, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message uh, of uh, reconciliation. Talks to us uh, about uh, being ambassadors for Jesus. And so uh, that's uh, my assignment that Christ gave to me and uh, have been fulfilling it all these years. Uh, I was uh, an elected chief in my village. I was an airline pilot uh, for 33 years 
and, uh, and a pastor uh, for uh, 50 years now altogether. And after saying all of that, uh, I would like to say to the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, of whom I belong, and, uh, and, uh, and proudly, um, uh, they have uh, stood by me all these years and uh, supported me and helped me and uh, helped me to grow and uh, to be staying true to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I honor uh, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada uh, from my perspective. Uh, it is our mandate by the Lord Jesus Christ to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to every person. And uh, that includes the native people of Canada. And uh, <clears throat> we've messed it up. Uh, we've messed it up. Uh, out of all of these years, centuries, that the Pentecostal Assemblies have, have been with us, we only have 100 native churches. Uh, and yet, uh, we're one of the most successful ones uh, from the denominations. So uh, I say to all our denominations that we have a lot of work to do to make proper reconciliation and repentance and approaching the native people in a new attitude of uh, uh, presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, uh, to our nation. I just pray right now, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, that Lord, in this presentation, is not uh, one of condemnation, O oh God, uh, but one, uh, Lord, of uh, the possibilities that are there. Lord, that you told us that we can go in and uh, we can minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. Father, you know you sent me to many other nations across the world to minister to the gospel, and they received me, O oh God. And uh, Lord, there are many others who would uh, be called to go back into the native villages and there would be a renewal, O oh God, of determination and calling upon uh, the Canadian people to go into our villages and minister and uh, support and help them uh, under their terms, O oh God, uh, to present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, unto them. Uh, leading them to, to Christ, uh, therefore, O oh God, receiving eternal life in Jesus. I pray this, Father. I pray that uh, our native pastors across Canada, O oh God, uh, out of all of the denominations, O oh God, would be kept and held and strengthened during this time. Our villages, O oh God, as uh, they um, search, O oh God, the ground, uh, for more uh, of our people. I just pray, Father, that, Lord, that uh, you would just cause uh, a tremendous revival uh, out of all of this hurt and uh, sadness, O oh God, and exposure, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I don't, I don't know about you, but um, it's, 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 there's no qualm, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking as we discover our history in such a, a real, a tangible way today. And I just want to thank Pastor Bruce for sharing his heart uh, and being so vulnerable for our district, for our, our fellowship. Um, and we do, sometimes prayers are more than just 
um, moments of agreement, sometimes prayers carry like a prophetic edge. And I hope as we've kind of sat through this together as a community of faith, that we would reflect on the words that were spoken and, um, and also the hope in which Pastor Bruce, he, he has such hope in Christ and he's such a great leader. He's a well-respected leader, uh, not, not only among the indigenous peoples of, of our, um, our, our nation, but also um, our fellowship. And so we, we need to be reflecting on the prophetic edge to that prayer because there is hope in Christ. And um, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to switch gears here now and we're going to get into our sermon. But we just felt it was just timely and a moment that we needed to take to reflect. And our prayers are with every, every individual that either experienced firsthand that situation and that moment, that reality, but also for those that um, maybe didn't experience it firsthand, but the effects of those moments um, in their own hearts, in their own lives, their own families. Um, we're all broken. We break with you. We mourn with you. We grieve with you. So we're going to switch gears now, but thank you for taking the time with us. Hello. Well, if we haven't met, my name is Lisa and in our home, when we want to make a purchase, the first thing that we do is talk to Lucas. And that's because Lucas typically is the one that does all of the research, reads all of the reviews, has the subscription to Consumer Reports, and he gives us the right recommendation with all of that information on which purchase to make. Do you have somebody like that in your life? We'd love to hear who that is. Now, sometimes we just bypass Lucas and we uh, do our own kind of review searching. And in those scenarios, Lucas will typically ask us, what did the reviews say? Now, personally, I have a love-hate relationship with reviews. I mean, have you ever got a product in the mail that the reviews were glowing and you <laughs> open this box and what you get is just not the same as what all of the reviewers had said, I would love to hear what is the like most disappointing purchase you've made where you've had glowing reviews and you open the box and well, that's just not what it is. We've heard of people who bought uh, clothing only to get it and it's like for a doll, uh, different things like that. And so I would love to hear that. So I'm a little bit hesitant on reviews. I have a love-hate relationship with reviews because I don't know, maybe it's just the pessimist. I'm not typically a pessimist, but when I'm reading reviews, maybe there's a pessimistic side of me that comes out. And if the reviews are really glowing, then I kind of go, well, you know, I'm sure it's just all the employees of this company writing these positive endorsements. Or if the reviews are really negative, then I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm sure it was just coincidence and all of these cranky people just happened to stay at this hotel or eat at this restaurant or buy this product. And so I kind of like to fall somewhere in the middle on these reviews because I just have a love-hate relationship with them. But they're necessary, right? Reviews give us an element of safety of knowing what the experience of the collective is, and it allows us to have a standard of expectation walking into an experience or when we unbox a product. 
reviews definitely have a place in our life. And so this morning we are heading back to John chapter 5 verses 31 to 47. And we're picking back up in this narrative where Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, to these Jewish leaders, and he's taking a moment to set the standard of their expectations. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 5, 31 to 47. John 5, 31 to 47. And if you don't have a Bible, but you would like one, head on over to myevangel.church forward slash Bible myevangel.church forward slash Bible, and we would love to get you a Bible. There are some links there as well as a form if you would like a paper Bible. It's all there. But right now we're gonna head over to John 5, 31 to 47. Before we dig in, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the truth of your word. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the one that guides us in truth that you uh, help these words to come to life because they are living and active because we have you with us. And so this morning, would you lead and guide us in truth? Would you um, speak to each one of us individually as you speak and as you point out uh, the things that we need to pay attention to, the life change that you want to instill within us? Would you guide us this morning? And as always, would you allow my own words just to float away, but would you speak? Holy Spirit, we wanna hear you in your precious name. Amen. Well, let me set the scene because it's been a couple of weeks as we paused and we walked through markers and maturity and the fruit of the Spirit. But Jesus in John chapter five meets this man at the pool of Bethesda and he heals this man. The problem is that he heals him on the Sabbath day and that becomes the catalyst to this heated encounter that he's having with these Jewish leaders. And in this encounter, Jesus lays out the reality of who he is, that he is God, that he is equal authority to God, as well as laying out the reality of what he has come to do, that he has come to be our salvation, to be our redeemer, to be the Messiah, the promised one that the Jews have been waiting for, for generations. And this doesn't sit well with the Jewish leaders. In fact, they're now looking for ways and reasons to be able to kill Jesus. They have that much animosity and skepticism toward the declarations that Jesus has made. And so Jesus, in all of his wisdom, brings forth these reviews, brings forth these testimonies, and sets the standard of expectation for who he is and what he's going to do with the remainder of his days and with the purpose of dying for humanity, of being our sacrificial lamb. And this isn't a just take my word for a moment. And I'm so grateful for that, that Jesus doesn't just say, take my word for it. Just uh, trust who I say I am. But he brings forth this proof that what he's declared to be true in these this previous moment, um, in just words before this moment, he says, you know, like, let's look at the whole and use this as evidence that backs up what I'm about to say to you or what I've previously said to you about who I am. So let's pick it up here in John 5. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. 
Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So Jesus, in this moment, in this like monologue, after coming off out of these declarations of, of who he is, he confronts these hidden thoughts, the skepticism and the heart motivation of these leaders. And he's giving them this ability to adjust their expectations of who the Messiah is going to be. He's setting the parameters um, around who he is. And and he's trying to align their expectations with who God is to prove these claims of the truth of who God is and what he's here to do. And this is a really important moment. See, Jesus wasn't just declaring himself to be God, to be our salvation without any evidence. He wasn't this self-fulfilling prophecy. He wasn't... Um, having this whole declaration in a bubble, he was a fulfillment of the earliest history we have. He was endorsed by those who were respected and whose stories were known, and he was affirmed by God himself. David Guzik writes, like anyone else, it was not enough for Jesus to simply claim things about himself. There had to be outside an independent witness to his identity and nature. Why? Why did Jesus take this step of bringing forth these reviews, these testimonies, to corroborate what he said? Well, it is important. <laughs> Have you ever been on the other side of somebody who uh, describes themselves or declares something about themselves and you're sitting there going, uh, that's not true. Like you have a blind spot where you're concerned. When we were away on vacation just last week, uh, we decided to try something new and we went to wild play, which is this high ropes, obstacle course and zip lining. And it was fun for three out of the four of us. Well, standing before you, I could declare to you that I was completely confident and at peace and a true adventurer on this whole thing. And standing here, all you have is my word for it. 
It wouldn't be a true word because I was definitely not confident or at peace and probably the last thing that an adventurer should look like on this high ropes course, but the only people who could corroborate that story were my family and the guide who graciously stood below us to help me through each obstacle, shouting up encouragement in my panic. If they didn't corroborate my story, if they chose to just stay silent, all you would have my, would be my word for it, my very untrue word for it. I could essentially craft any narrative that I wanted and you would have no reason to believe or disbelieve what I say. And so this is this beautiful gift that Jesus brings to us in this heated encounter with these Jewish leaders. He corroborates the declaration of who he is with the testimony of others. He's saying, it's not just a take my word for it moment. I'm going to give you evidence to back up what I'm saying about myself so that you can wrestle this truth and come out confident on the other side of it. It's a beautiful gift. In John 5, 31, Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor and I know that his testimony about me is true. And so Jesus brings to us these different reviews, these different testimonies of a few different people. So we're just going to rush through them um, for a second, just so we can look at them quick and not miss any. So first up is John the Baptist. And we know that John the Baptist had this incredible uh, birth, right? Uh, he was not supposed to be here. Elizabeth was well past the years when she should have been able to have a child and she was barren. This was a well-known fact. And then she conceives a son and what happens to Zechariah when he meets the angel and he goes mute and they say, write, writes down, call him John, he can speak again. This is an incredible story in a small community. It would have been very well documented and very well passed on, I'm sure. And so John was hailed as this incredibly um, righteous man, well-deserved. And we know through scripture that he was this forerunner of Jesus, that he was the messenger who would make way for the Lamb of God to come, that he would point people to Jesus as their Messiah, as their Redeemer. And so bringing this testimony of who John was and who uh, John said Jesus was, was an important thing. There was no question that John was a man of God, that he was used mightily of God. And so his testimony corroborates what Jesus is declaring of himself because John himself said those words of him. John has been reflecting the light of God to the world around him. And the beautiful thing about this description of John is, is lamp. He is the vessel of God's light. John didn't have the light himself. We don't have the light in ourselves. This isn't something we can create, but we can be the vessels that carry the light of God within us and use it to point out the path to Jesus. And it is interesting to me that John, as this forerunner of Jesus, as the messenger declaring who Jesus was, 
was accepted. Well, Jesus, the person of his message was rejected. But John uses this light that he has to point all to Jesus, to our true Messiah, to the one that the Jews had been waiting for. And so he is the first testimony that Jesus brings up to say, look, don't just take my word for it. Look to John. Next are the works that Jesus has done and is going to do. And they reveal the truth that Jesus just isn't any man. He's not just an ordinary man doing cool things or, or good things. Jesus uh, was, <laughs> Jesus was a good man, but he was a supernatural being. He was able to teach with authority and wisdom. He was able to know the hearts of men and women without them speaking a word. He was able to perform miracles, cast out demons, on and on and on it goes to show that all authority of God, all power and might of God rested on Jesus because he is God. And again, when we layer all these things together with, with the declaration of who Jesus says he is, and then we watch the walk of Jesus, as we watch what he did, what he did backs up the claims that he makes about who he is. Then we have this testimony of God the Father. And so again, we're kind of getting, we're looking backwards at this baptism moment when the Godhead declares Jesus as God. And Jesus is quick to point out that, you know, they probably weren't there. They probably didn't hear the audible voice of God the Father. That the story of that moment would have been passed on. That was a pretty incredible moment. When a voice comes out of the sky, when the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and God the Father affirmed and affirms who Jesus is. Not only that, but he spoke of the coming of Jesus bodily through generations, through the prophets, and through these moments in his presence. And, and the baptism just cemented them all. That Jesus, who is here bodily, walking with uh, on the earth with skin and bones, uh, was God the Son, who was part of the Trinity, which the Jewish culture would have been very well familiar with. And then verse 39 continues with this affirmation of scripture pointing to the credibility of Jesus' claims. So from the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the moment had been set up for us to have a Redeemer who would come, who would restore the relationship with God and man. And from that moment forward, all of history, all of these moments recorded for us in the narrative of scripture, these pages back here before Jesus was born, they create this entire picture, these prophecies, these foretelling of things that would, would identify Jesus for us. And Jesus fulfills all of them. These ways that Israel was going to recognize their Redeemer, their Messiah, Jesus fulfilled them all. Like statistically, that's impossible. And so again, this testimony backs up Jesus's claims of who he is as God and who he is as Messiah. 
So Jesus shares all of these testimonies, all of these accounts. He, he takes all of this evidence that corroborate his claims, his declarations, just previous to this in John 5. And basically he's looking in these, these leaders in the eyes and saying, when will it be enough for you? What is it going to take for you to put your faith in me? When will you have enough evidence to trust what I'm saying is truth. And we have to wrestle with that same question. What do we need in order to believe that what Jesus says is truth? What do I need in order to believe that he is God and not just God, but he's also my redeemer, that he's the only way for me to have a right relationship with God, where are those places where I'm still wrestling with my doubts and my questions? And we all have them. And interestingly enough, the questions and the doubts wasn't the part that Jesus had a problem with. Jesus had a problem that their minds were already set, that they had decided that it really didn't matter what Jesus answered to them, they weren't willing to receive the answer and wrestle with it. They weren't willing to listen to the answer and mull it over. They had already decided that whatever Jesus answered wasn't good enough. In John 5, 43, Jesus says, I have come in my father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, like John, for instance, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, the issue wasn't that they were curious about who Jesus was or who, if he was who he said he was, but rather that even in light of all of these testimonies, even in light of all of the miracles, even in light of Jesus, like literally reading their mind and answering unspoken questions, even in light of all of that, they were closed to the truth of who he said he was and who he still is. And these leaders, they, they knew the scriptures. They poured over the prophecies. They had even memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They knew the word of God inside and out, and they failed to recognize Jesus when he stood in front of them because they had pre-decided that they were going to be disappointed. They had pre-decided that they were going to be doubtful and that they were going to be dismissive. These people who knew what scripture said used it not to prove Jesus, but to discredit him. William Barclay says they read it not to search for God, but to find arguments to support their own positions. They did not really love God. They loved their own ideas about him. Have you had that moment before in your life? You know, the one where it like truly doesn't matter what you do. You just know the person in front of you doesn't like you. Like you could stand on your head and you're not going to impress them. It's a little bit like the journey of parenthood, right? It doesn't matter what you do. You just know that it's a lost cause. And I think that that was the moment that grieved the heart of Jesus. 
And it really didn't matter what he did. It didn't matter what he said. Their hearts were stoned because they had pre-decided that they were not gonna fall for this Jesus person. And you know what, that danger is there for us too. I think that we can fall into this trap as well where, where we get close-minded and close-hearted and we're, we're wrestling with questions, but we've already made up our minds about the answers. And this morning, if you're exploring faith with us, thank you so much for being here. I have a question for you to ask yourself, and that is, what are your standards of expectations? What are those things that, that you're wrestling with, but what have you pre-decided that you're going to believe in the outcome? So if you're wrestling with faith and if you're here exploring faith, I'm so glad you're here, but I want to ask if you're open to hearing the answers to your questions and wrestling with them, or if you've already made up your mind about what the answer should be. Now, this isn't a question that's uh, exclusive to those that are exploring faith. Those of us who have known Jesus for 99 years, uh, they, that still applies to us because we all still wrestle with questions and doubts. But what are our standards of expectations of God? What is it going to take for us to be open to his timeline, to be open to his answers to our prayers, to trusting his character, to trusting him? Have we pre-decided something about the character of God that's going to lead us to be disappointed? It's going to lead us to be dismissive rather than having a heart that's humble and open. That when the Holy Spirit speaks, we're receptive and willing to hear. And we can have the response of so many that upon meeting Jesus and hearing his teaching and seeing the things that they that he did they put their faith in him and they put their trust in him and they followed him or we can have the response of the Pharisees whose hearts were made hard by their own predecisions that they were turned by their own reputations they wanted to guard their own fame, and they never really listened to the message of Jesus in the first place. And rather than searching that evidence and those reviews and that testimony for the truth, they sought only the evidence that would corroborate their own pre-decided conclusions. And again, I want to stress that it wasn't the questions, it wasn't the inquisitions, it wasn't the doubts or or the thoughts that Jesus had a problem with. That wasn't why he spoke sternly to them. It was that they had pre-decided, they had closed their hearts to protect their own reputation. And following Jesus, it's not for the faint of heart. Following Jesus has a very real cost attached. There's a daily surrender of laying down our own wants and. And I think that requires us to wrestle with the weight of salvation, to really grapple with, do we believe this Jesus guy? Do we believe the claims that he made about himself? Do we believe that he's with us now, that, that this God we can't see is real? Do we believe it? 
because there's a real cost attached to following Jesus. And we can't count that cost unless we wrestle that question to the ground. And so we have to wrestle with who Jesus is and do we believe that he's God? Do we believe that he is who he declared himself to be? Do we believe that he is the only way to salvation? And those aren't questions that can be glossed over or trivialized because they are the center of what we believe and they require us to wrestle them. And wrestling them doesn't displease God. Here's the good news. God is with us in the wrestling. The Holy Spirit is waiting to provide testimony. He's waiting to make scripture come to life. He's waiting to guide us into all truth. He's waiting to work through others who know him and have, have a hope to share, stories to share about how they met Jesus. But it requires a humbling of our own hearts to be willing to listen and to follow and to lead. And this isn't a one-time thing. This isn't an introduction to Jesus wrestling. This isn't a before. This is a during. Throughout our faith journey, there are going to be moments where we sit back and go, is this all for nothing? God, do you really exist? And that's okay. It is okay to have questions and to have doubts we have an open heart to wrestle those things out. It's okay to have to go back to the foundations of our faith and say, do I really believe this? Is this really true? Instead of just glossing over it and having cracks in the foundation of our faith, I think Jesus would much rather us go back down to those cracks and repair them through the power of the Holy Spirit and through his leading than he would try and have us build towers on cracked foundation. It's going to end up in a mess. And the good news for us that, that have known Jesus for a while, when our doubts come, when our questions come, when we are once again wrestling with those things that are at the core of our faith, is that you're not wrestling alone. God's not standing in a corner saying, I'll be over here when you figure it out. No, he's in the wrestling with you, just like he was when you came to faith in him. He's there to lead you in all truth. He's there to testify. The Holy Spirit points you back to Jesus. And we have a faith community. We have a family of God now where we can go and we can say, you, can you speak into my circumstance? I've watched you walk through this. Can you share the hope that you have once again with me? Because I need to hear the stories of God coming through. It's okay to wrestle, but don't pre-decide what the outcomes are going to be. Don't pre-decide those expectations. Have a heart that's open to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you, to bring you into truth, to, to speak once again what those things are, to guide you, to, to lead you where you need to go. So will we have a heart like those Pharisees that were pre-decided and hard and closed off, or will we have a heart that's open to the Holy Spirit to allow him to lead us into his will.
Matthew Henry wrote, it is the love of God in us, the love that is a living, active principle in the heart which God will accept. They, the religious leaders, slighted and undervalued Christ because they admired and overvalued themselves. Friends, their pride wouldn't let them surrender. It kept their heart hard and closed off from the working of the Holy Spirit. My prayer for all of us, myself included, is that we would be those who would be humble of heart. How we would be those who would lean into the presence of the Holy Spirit, who would allow ourselves to be led. And that when questions and doubts come, and they will, they will. It's natural. That we would run to God with hearts that are open to say, would you fix this foundation? Would you show me once again the testimony that what you declare about yourself is true? And from that, that we would be good reviews of the difference that Jesus makes in a life. Let me pray for you. So God, I thank you so much that you understand our humanity and that you don't shake your head at us when we, we grapple with our faith, but that you are there, Holy Spirit, to lead and guide us into all truth. And so this morning, I pray that you would meet my friends on the other side of this screen, wherever they're at, wherever they are on their faith journey, whatever they are wrestling with right now, would you minister to them as only you can do? I thank you that you are truth, that you are our true north, that you are constant and unchanging, and you are our firm foundation that we can stand on and not be shaken. And so would you help us once again to come before you humble, to come before you willing to be led into all truth. And would you do the work that only you can do where there are cracks in the foundation, would you fix them? Would you remind us of who you are in your precious name? Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for this time spent together. And I'm going to pass it back to Pastors Lucas and Pastor Marcus. Well, thank you, Lisa. Uh, we just have a few announcements. We have some exciting announcements. Mm -hmm. And the first one is July 4th. Yeah. We are going to be in person. Now, here's the deal. Currently under our variances that we are under right now, we are having two services. Registration is open for that. So you can visit myevangel.church forward slash register and get yourself registered for our services. There's a 9 a.m. and an 11 a.m. Now here's a caveat. We have phase three on the horizon. And so we're thinking around July 1st is the next uh, date for that. So if we find out on July 1st that we can have more people in our building and less restrictions, we will then combine those two services into a 10 o'clock a.m. service. So those going to 9, you come at 10. Goes going to 11, you come at 10, and we'll have the whole family yep. back together. That's our hope. Yeah. But in the meantime, we do have to make sure we're ready for maybe some bad news. And so we'll keep mm -hmm. that 9 a.m., 11 a.m. Things are filling up quickly, yep. so register. If you have trouble registering, just call our office. Mm -hmm. We can help get you set up. And then we're so excited because the following after that, we get to continue in the celebrations and celebrate our graduates. So at they will actually be graduating this weekend, 
um, but we just wanted to have a moment together in person where we could celebrate them as well. And so if you uh, are a graduate or have a graduate in your home from high school, we would love for them to come that day. Uh, and if not, if you wanna just support them, we're gonna uh, bring them up to the front, pray over them, uh, just show them that the community is there with them as they kind of take that big next step into adulthood. Uh, give them a small gift and just commission them into this next step. And so we would love for you all to join us together as we honor our grads on July 11th. Um, July 1st, our office is gonna be closed. Yes. And so we just wanna make you aware of that. And then finally, if uh, you wanna give to what Evangel does here in Powell River and around the world, uh, we would love for you to do that. Every penny helps in mm -hmm. to, to continue the mission that God has set before us. And so we thank you for your faithfulness that you've shown uh, and, and that God's faithfulness has been upon all of us. So if you wanna give, you can go to myevangel.church forward slash give, and it will give you three great ways that you can give. Uh, and so we hope to see you again soon, uh, hopefully in person, and if not, then still online as all of our content will be continuing even when we reopen in person. But thanks so much, friends, for joining us, and we will see you again next week. See ya.